Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. Today's guests, Chad Griffin and Paula Vogel. Griffin is the president of the Human Rights Campaign, the biggest LGBTQ advocacy organization in the country. And Vogel is a playwright whose hit play, Indecent, is up for best play at the Tonys this weekend. Here's how they fit together in the midst of Pride Month. Griffin is a committed Democrat. He worked for Bill Clinton, was a regular presence at the White House under Obama, spoke at the Democratic Convention for Hillary Clinton. But this weekend, he'll be part of the major pride marches that are going to be, in large part, about protesting Donald Trump. His message to the president and to the president's daughter Ivanka is something we got into. He called Ivanka Trump's tweet last week on Gay Pride Month shocking and a PR attempt to try to show this president as perhaps being a bit more compassionate than he actually is. He's angry about the White House's record so far and worried about where it might lead. He also got into what he'd say to her and to other members of the Trump administration and his warning to people to not be used by the White House, which he thinks is a real possibility. And then the lessons that he thinks people who are opposed to President Trump can learn from the success of the gay rights movement. Come together and come out. There's nothing that changes a voter's mind better than hearing why this president is hurting me and hurting our community, Griffin said. You'll also hear his message to younger LGBTQ people, trying to sort out how, what the things he's mad about mean to them. Then there's Vogel. Her play, Indecent, centers on the story behind a play featuring a lesbian kiss that was a major hit of the Yiddish theater and beyond all over Europe in the 1920s. It's caught up in the history of theater, of censorship, of the immigrant experience, and of course, of the emerging public recognition of gays and lesbians all against the backdrop of what was going on in Europe in the 1920s and 1930s. My producer Bridget and I saw it this week. It's really something. She said she'd love to have Vice President Mike Pence come to see the show, like when he went to see Hamilton the week after the election. You don't want to write something that preaches to the converted, right? You want to convert. So she talked about that and how the context of the play has changed in her mind and the work that she wants to do now since the election. The play was written before the election. It was produced first before the election, but now, obviously, it's all, uh, as everything else is, very much caught up in what uh, is going on in the, the political moment. And she talked very interestingly about what she thinks is art in the age of Trump and her concern about how theater, which in her mind should bring people together the way that she wants to have Mike Pence in the theater seeing a play that obviously is not one that I would imagine the vice president would write himself, is something that he, uh, that, that instead of bringing people together can actually divide at this moment. She talked about how people could get a nice buzz or a numbness uh, rather than the resilience that we might feel by actually sharing the emotion of what's happening. If people are just producing art to, and producing theater that takes shots at the president, uh, then that doesn't really do anything. And actually, we ended up talking about this in the context of Saturday Night Live and what, what happened this season as uh, that show and Alec Baldwin's impression became less about sat- satire or parody and, and more, it seemed like, about sticking it to the president. And the play ends on a hopeful note, despite uh, all the things that it's about. Uh, and she talked about why she made that choice and why to her that matters more now. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast. Rate us. And follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at Isaac Dover. Email me with your thoughts at Isaac at Politico.com. And now, our conversation with Chad Griffin up first, followed by Paula Vogel. Let's start by 
I'm going to read you a Trump, an Ivanka Trump tweet uh, that she sent out on uh, Thursday of last week. She said, I'm proud to support my LGBTQ friends and LGBTQ Americans who have made immense contributions to our society and economy. What is that? When I read you that uh, from Ivanka Trump uh, with what else you think about her and what's going on, what does that make you think? Well, look, uh, first of all, actions speak louder than words. Not only is her father um, the president, uh, but she and her husband are both uh, senior people, senior advisors in the West Wing of the White House. Um, And so for her or anyone else to be pushing out words of support uh, when we're seeing the exact opposite uh, when it comes to actions, when it comes to appointments, when it comes to policies, uh, this administration since day one uh, has undermined uh, the rights uh, of our community. Uh, so it's just somewhat shocking uh, that she would uh, push that tweet out. In fact, I think she probably did it because the White House is under a lot of heat. For the first time in a very long time, uh, the White House did not issue uh, a proclamation uh, for Pride Month. And I think she was attempting uh, to give them cover. It's unfortunate. Again, the, the tweet came uh, very shortly after the president made the announcement about the Paris Accords. And there was some sense that uh, Part of what she was doing is that she had lost on uh, that because the sense is that she had lobbied him a lot, uh, and we see that she had uh, she had arranged a lot of conversations uh, at least to try to keep him in the climate agreement, uh, but it didn't work out for her. And so then it was okay. Well, moving on to this, um, does that make it any different in your mind? No, it doesn't. Look, we we have seen a, a number of stories that have been pushed out and seemingly um, planned and, and pitched um, to present Ivanka and Jared uh, as pro-LGBT or, in the case that you just mentioned, uh, pro-climate change. As it relates to the LGBT community, we have seen uh, absolutely not a single incident uh, where this administration, where this president has been pro-LGBT. Uh, In every single instance, uh, they've worked to roll back and to undermine uh, equality day in uh, and uh, day out. And so I I have to tell you, um, I think most in our community view it as nothing more uh, than a PR attempt uh, to try to show this president as perhaps being a bit more compassionate uh, than he actually is. But why – you mentioned the the lack of a Pride Month statement. Okay, so – Every person who's on the White House press list gets these statements, uh, you know, the, the last day of the month or uh, first day of the month. Okay, it's this month, that month. Um, sometimes it's this week or this day. Uh, I would uh, – I think I'm not overestimating to say that 99% of reporters delete 99% of them without reading them. So, okay, they didn't make a declaration. Why does that matter? Um, I, I think that's fair to say. But I think what's important to remember is the LGBTQ community um, has for decades not been at the table has for decades uh, not been in the White House. And the last administration, uh, in particular, the Obama administration, opened the White House and had pride celebrations, invited LGBT folks from all over this country, including uh, LGBT parents you know, living in towns big and small all across this country, and really showed that LGBT people uh, are a fabric of our country and are central to our society and are respected just like everyone else. The Obama administration went a long way uh, in doing that. Uh, this administration has gone a long way uh, to roll that back everywhere they can. And, you say and a long I think way, it's fair only, to say. Right, I think, it's only I, been a couple months I think already. It's, right. Well, a, a couple of months. Look at what this president has done. 
First and foremost, he chooses his number two, arguably one of the single most important decisions a, a candidate makes. He chose Mike Pence as the vice president of the United States. Mike Pence has literally spent his entire career undermining equality for LGBT people. This is a man who has supported conversion therapy, both in Congress and as a governor. This is a man as a governor who fought hard, who didn't promote laws that would protect us. He fought hard to legalize discrimination against LGBTQ people. This is the man that was charged with the transition, and he and Donald Trump literally went around the country and plucked the most anti-LGBT people, our enemies, off the battlefield and put them in charge of the government. From the Attorney General of the United States to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, today you have a Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development charged with enforcing the Fair Housing Act, and it's a man that does not even acknowledge that LGBT people exist as human beings. You have Attorney General, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer, who doesn't believe and who fought, not just voted against the Hate Crimes Act, but fought to stop it. You have a secretary of the Department of Education who our very first act as secretary was to undermine and roll back protections for transgender people. This president and this administration has day after day undermined equality uh, for LGBT people. And I would agree with you as it relates, by the way, uh, to the proclamation. Proclamations are symbolic. They're symbolic. It does say something about the priority that a White House and that a president uh, places on a particular issue on a particular uh, group of people. Um, and we don't need President Trump uh, to have pride, let me just say. And I think you'll see that this weekend and across this month as millions and millions of people uh, will take to the streets, not to just show their pride, uh, but to protest and to resist uh, exactly what this president is doing. Do you think you can have a conversation with Ben Carson uh, given what you obviously think about him or, or with Jeff Sessions or, or Mike Pence. Like, could you have, would you be able to sit through that conversation? Sure. Look, I, I have said uh, many of times, one of the real lessons of our progress is to write off no one anywhere. You know, it was only a few years ago where I was part of a group of people that hired Ted Olson, a very conservative Republican, and paired him with a progressive Democrat uh, to push forward uh, on marriage equality. I think anyone's mind uh, can be changed, particularly as it relates to the public as a whole. But what do but you say to Ben Carson what do you, when, as you said, he has made the comments that he's made? How do you start that conversation off by saying, yes, I'm here, I exist? I, I think it's much more difficult when you're talking about people whose careers have been made on undermining the rights of LGBTQ people. Like Pence. I, right. Like Mike Pence or like Secretary Carson, or like the Attorney General of the United States. The Attorney General of the United States and the uh, Secretary uh, of Health and Human Services, these are people that in their time in Congress, they had perfect zeros on our scorecard. That's actually really hard to do. We have a lot of Republicans today that have mid-range numbers. We have a couple that are at 100 or at least near it. You have to work really hard uh, to undermine equality in order to have a zero. That's who Donald Trump has surrounded himself with to lead and to run this government. And so if Ivanka Trump were sitting here, what, what would you say to her, given your thoughts on her? I would say we need your voice and we need it to be loud. An ally is not someone who tells people that they're an ally. An ally is not someone who sends a tweet to show that they're an ally. An ally is someone who stands up and fights 
for a cause, stands up and fights for the rights of those LGBT young people all across this country that are being bullied today because of this president, or transgender students that are being attacked today because of this president and his actions to roll back their protections. We need voices internally. We don't need someone who will give cover to what this president is doing. That's what and she's I doing. realize she's a family member, but she also is an employee. She is someone who works in the West Wing uh, of the White House. So when you disagree with something, stand up. Let's hear a voice inside the West Wing saying why you disagree with the attacks that this president is making on our community and so many other uh, minority communities. You worked in the White House uh, during the Clinton years. You spent a lot of time over there during the Obama years. Uh, have you been back there since uh, Trump has been inaugurated? No, we have not been uh, invited to the White House. Through the transition, uh, we reached out um, and tried to have a meeting, tried to have conversations. Um, and, you know, we didn't have um, – we weren't real positive as to the response given that Mike Pence was charged uh, with the inauguration uh, – I'm sorry, with the transition. Um, so they did not agree uh, to a meeting. Now, uh, Republicans, a number of Republicans on the Hill have been helpful – uh, in passing along information and encouraging uh, actions around certain things. So there certainly are Republicans in Washington that have been helpful. But as it relates uh, to this White House and this West Wing, uh, no, we have not been invited. But and you'd I, go? Well, um, let me say a couple of things. I think anyone who is invited to meet with this president needs to be careful that they're not being used. There are a lot of examples where this president has used individuals to give cover to other terrible things that he's doing. So I would say, number one, I mean, make, that, certain, right? that, make so, certain that you're not being used. But number two, this president knows my views. He doesn't need to sit down with me. What he should do is sit down with the transgender students, sit down with the parents of transgender students, and hear directly from them why they're being hurt by his actions. That's what Donald Trump needs to do. So is this a, a difficult moment for LGBTQ activism? Is it a, uh, a weird moment? What, what, how, how would you describe what's going on now? Well, I would say that this is an unprecedented moment where we have not seen more attacks and more attempts to roll back our progress um, in, in, in decades. It is unprecedented what we're seeing. And by the way, not just the specific and direct and overt attacks on the LGBTQ community, but I said this before during the campaign. It it, it seems that it, it's unclear who Donald Trump thinks LGBTQ people are as he waves a rainbow flag and claims to be an ally to our community because, you know, L LGBTQ people, we are people of color. We are women. We are transgender. We are immigrants and, you know, we are asylum seekers. We are all of the populations that this president, you know, attacks um, day in uh, and day out. Uh, the the thought like a year ago, year and a half ago about uh, the kind of activism that you do is that it was about figuring out what the next frontier is once gay marriage had been legalized by the Supreme yeah. Court. Um, then uh, I'm sure you know people who had this conversation. I've heard from uh, some gay and lesbian people that I know that said, oh, maybe we should rush to get married after Trump got elected mm. because there's a worry about that. Mm -hmm. Is that – do you think that concern is – like real, or is that just people who were getting a little hyperbolic after uh, the results came in? No, look, I, I think Trump is uh, working to do exactly what our opponents want. 
I think to fully understand this, you need to look at the context of marriage. As we were going into that final ruling on marriage equality, most of our opponents knew that the Supreme Court was likely to come down on the side of freedom uh, and equality, as they had done so many times in the history uh, of this country. So our opponents started looking. They were going to run out of business, so they started looking to where else they could go. And they, they went two places. First, they went globally. They went to try to roll back progress in countries like you know, Russia and a host of other countries to roll back our progress. In every single country around the world where you see rollbacks or where you see countries moving towards death penalty or, or, or criminal uh, punishment for being LGBT, you can draw a straight line to an American, to an American group, and to American dollars. The second place they went was to the states and to the federal government to roll back our rights in a few areas. Number one, under the guise of religious freedom, what we call religious refusal laws, or some call Mike Pence-style laws, um, was efforts to be able to deny services or to deny marriage rights, to allow public officials paid for by taxpayers an ability to say, no, it's against my beliefs, I'm not going to marry you. Um, and so that is where the fear is that they are chipping away and appointing judges that hold mm -hmm. that same uh, view. But marriage is going to be – gay marriage is going to be legal, you think, for – that's not changing. I think or it's going think to be – people who are worried about that need to worry about maybe other things. Th right? they, they, should, they should worry about the efforts to chip away at the right to marry through religious refusal laws. Um, and that's, by the way, the exact same thing that we saw in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. As you saw court – uh, advancements. You saw the opponents of civil rights um, run to the states and try to roll back uh, those rights. Um, and so I do think, and that's what we're seeing in states all across this country, is attempts uh, to do just uh, that. But the Obergefell uh, decision by the Supreme Court uh, is a final decision, and I think we have to be vigilant to ensure that other justices, whether it's Supreme Court nominees or lower court uh, nominees, um, we have to look at what their positions are. We have to look at past rulings um, and, and fight hard to try to stop judicial nominees that would roll back those rights through a different lens, through the lens of religious refusal laws uh, and other types uh, of legal avenues. I'm going to say something which is not that controversial, which is that the, the gay rights movement has been probably the most successful civil rights movement in terms of how much has changed and how short of a time, uh, maybe before this moment, uh, that uh, in the last 15, 20 years. So when you think about what uh, not only the work that you uh, are going to do in the, the years ahead, uh, but what other people who are opposed to the president's agenda are trying to do to mobilize and activate and do more than just have people have marches. You're going to have marches this weekend, but that it's, it's more than a march, right, uh, that you want. Uh, what is it that, uh, that are like the principles or the, the things that you need to be, uh, that you guys need to think about and that others can learn from what you guys did? Yeah, well, and, and when I say you guys here, I'm speaking, I guess, about the human rights campaign. Uh, but uh, and you were active, not always in uh, LGBTQ rights. Well, I think it's in, it's important to note that we all stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, our movement is one. This organization is 37 years old. Um, our movement has been built uh, over decades by brave, brave individuals, LGBT and Q, all across this country, uh, who stood up uh, with great risk um, in in different times. Um, and But in many ways, they gave us the path forward. If there is one lesson in our movement, it's organize, organize, organize. 
And in some ways, our movement is just starting to fully realize our political power. Just look at this last election. We were 5% of the electorate. In fact, we were one of the only populations that increased our support in the pro-equality candidate, in this case, the Democrat, over the last election by 10 points. We're nearly 10 million eligible LGBT voters in the country today, 5% turnout in this election. Compare that to other, you know, other communities. The Jewish vote's around 2.5%. The Asian vote is around 4%. African-American, Latino vote, 11, between 11 14 um, When we organize, we can actually decide elections, and that is what our focus is on today. Our focus today is on doing everything we can to stop the attempts to roll back our progress by this president and stop hateful nominees like Mark Green, who the president had nominated to be the secretary of, uh, of the army and has since dropped out. Um, but we really have an eye towards the midterm elections and then the elections uh, four years from now and organizing our community and ensuring that we turn out uh, in force. And but organizing we, how? I mean, and, and it's not just about the organizing, right? There, there's just such a massive shift that happened in the way that people think about this. I, and I remember... Uh, in 2011, when mm -hmm. Cuomo signed gay marriage into law in New York, uh, and I was working on art an article about it, then I talked to Joe Trippi, yeah. who uh, had been Howard Dean's uh, campaign manager in '04, and he said, "Think about how crazy this is. That and the premise of the article is that had Hillary not run, um, that speaking from 2011 would have." That gay right, gay marriage would have been a sort of litmus test issue in the Democratic primary, who whether you were for it or when and when you were for it. Um, so Trippy says to me, "Think about it. Like that, you're asking that question about 2016, when in 2003 it was a big deal for Howard Dean to be for civil unions. He was on the cover of yeah. Time Magazine for it. That's right. right? So it, it, there's there's a shift that's happened in the culture." There's a shift that happened in uh, the activism. There's a shift that happened in obviously the courts uh, that and and other uh, legal ways as a result of that. But when you so so when you're sitting here, you're thinking like, well, what do people do about Donald Trump if they don't like him, but they want to change how people think about him? What? How do they break through? How do they? What is it? And it's not just like get a sitcom like Will and Grace on the air. Like, no, I guess it's coming back, right? That is coming back. <laughs> I'm I'm excited that Match Max Muchnick and the team are bringing Will and Grace back. That is that will be great. But like that's one of those things, right? Universe. Where people say like, oh, well, Will and Grace was really what, it, but it's not Will and Grace or whatever. It's it's more complicated than that. Well, well, though I think something that is very unique uh, to our to our movement today, more than ninety percent of Americans say that they know someone very close to them uh, that is gay, lesbian, or bisexual. And as that number has gone up over the years, so too has the support for our rights. Mm -hmm. The moment someone in their family comes out or a close colleague or coworker or next-door neighbor, fellow congregate at church comes out of the closet, all of a sudden someone who was against us starts to think, not always, but starts to think, differently about our rights. Sure. Um, there are plenty of examples of that. Today, nearly 40% of Americans say that they know someone close to them that is transgender. And that is why we're also seeing that the support for transgender rights move uh, in, in a considerable pace, in fact, much faster uh, than the number for gay So is it that people bi. need to, uh, it's not a perfect analogy at all, but that people need to tell their family members that they're uh, 
anti-Trump if they want to help change the mood on it? Is it that they need to tell people, tell their family members, like, this is the way it's affecting me, whether that's uh, as somebody who's LGBTQ or uh, an immigrant or, or whatever the issue may be? I, I actually think we have the, the perfect example, and it's a model that we're building on as an organization. This last election, while we were certainly not able to celebrate the results on election night, we had a milestone historic moment in the history of our movement. For the very first time in our history, we ousted a statewide elected official solely on the issue that they attacked our community and transgender people specifically. You're talking North Carolina. In the state of North Carolina. Pat McCrory lost his race. And by the way, a state that voted, I think, plus two or plus three or four points for Donald Trump. And we invested heavily in that state, not just because it was the right thing to do to knock out this governor that attacked us, but that we could send a signal to others all around this country. If you come after us, we're going to organize and we're coming after you on election day. Now, there's more than 250,000 LGBT voters in the state of North Carolina. We certainly activated them. We couldn't have won that election alone if we were reliant upon LGBT voters. We won that race because we talked to allies. We talked to moderate Republicans. We talked to Republican women. We talked to independent Republican and Democrat millennial voters on this issue specifically. And you find it in the state of North Carolina, but you also find it uh, nationally. There are few issues that can be a deal breaker for a voter. But for millennial voters, if you are fundamentally against equality, or in Pat McCrory's case, if you've literally built your entire identity around it, um, it's a deal breaker. They could be with you on every other issue, but they're not going to vote for you because of that issue. But so it seems like what you're saying, and tell me if I'm jumping ahead on you, is that that it's not just about organizing, but it's about figuring out the the coalitions there. I mean, right, you guys have these marches coming up this weekend, and there's been the March for Science and the Women's March, and like there have been a lot of marches, but it, it it's it, – one question ends up coming up is, well, so what happens when people go home from the march? And the second issue is like, okay, so you march for women, you right? Like, how do you bring the people together on a, on a larger scale, and not not just about the the issues that are uh, motivating you every day at the top of your mind, but on all these issues that, as I think it's fair to say, a committed Democrat, right, um, make you uh, not just on LGBTQ issues uh, opposed to Trump. Well, I, I honestly think there's nothing that changes a voter's mind better than hearing why this president is hurting me and hurting our community. And yes, it's great that we have visible marches this weekend, not just here in Washington, but we have marches all around the country. There are 12 prides this weekend. I'll be here in D.C. on Saturday. I'll be in Los Angeles for their march uh, on Sunday and then in Orlando for the one-year anniversary of, of Pulse uh, on Monday. Um, but what's most important is what people do when they go home. The resistance is not happening in Washington, D.C. The resistance is happening where our members are in every single district all across this country. We have nearly 2 million members and supporters in all 50 states. There are more than 10 million eligible LGBT voters. When those folks are speaking in their districts, when they're showing up at the district offices, at the town halls, not calling Washington, D.C., but calling the local district office of their member of Congress, for their uh, senator, and asking, why are you not standing up to Donald Trump? Or why are you not standing with us to protect the Affordable Care Act? That is what resistance actually looks like. And we, as an organization and in coalition with Planned Parenthood, NAACP, and others, are working very hard to do that uh, in districts all across this country um, so that we can 
talk to voters and so that we can change people's minds. And I believe ultimately uh, we're going to see some real success uh, in these midterms. We're going to see a lot more pro-equality candidates knocking out folks who have chosen to stand against equality and stand with this president. And we just might be able to take back the House or the Senate or perhaps even both, depending on this president's uh, numbers uh, and his uh, unpopularity. Uh, I want to ask you one last question here. You've, you've, uh, you've spoken about your own story uh, about coming out, and, and uh, I wonder if, if you reflect on that and becoming more active on LGBTQ rights, and you think about someone who uh, is a teenager now who is figuring out his or her identity um, and feels, okay, well, I'm LGBTQ, um, but is looking at the president that you have all the problems with and that is bad on the issues in the way that you have said. What do you say to that person, is it to that kid, to think like, you know, the, 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 the it, it Gets Better campaign was a, a big part of, uh, of the gay rights movement um, a couple years ago. I guess now it's kind of not as big. Uh, do you say it gets better to that, that teenager? I say you can be a part of making it better. And as a young person, I didn't have the courage to come out. I was not. I do not have a courageous coming out story. I was in my late 20s when I finally had the courage to be able to come out you know, to my family uh, and to my friends. The real courageous heroes in this country today are these young LGBT kids living in towns big and small. I grew up in Arkansas. For many of these kids, the bullying and the harassment or the hate they hear from the pulpit on a Sunday morning or Sunday night, um, that has real-life impacts. And it can truthfully have horrific uh, and sometimes uh, life-threatening consequences. But what gives me so much hope is that I, I travel the country today. These are the people leading the way. Young LGBTQ people that had far, have far more courage than I did as a young um, closeted gay person. They are coming out. They are sharing their stories. They are marching. They are standing with us at their state capitals. They are the reasons that ultimately uh, we are going to win uh, this civil rights battle. The courageous young people uh, all across this country. And by standing up, they help give themselves uh, and their friends and colleagues hope, but also the next generation. And what if they were to say, okay, Chad, but like Donald Trump's the president, Mike Pence is the vice president, all the people that you, uh, Ben Carson, uh, Jeff Sessions, all the people you've said are so bad on these issues, they're the people who are in control of the government. What, what do you say to them? And it's our job to change that. What everyone has to remember is this man that lives a few blocks down the street where I'm talking to you today, um, he's just a temporary tenant of the White House, as are every single one of those cabinet secretaries. Our job is to oust them. Our job is to replace all of them with pro-equality people who will stand up and champion equal rights and the fundamental dignity uh, of each and every American. And I do believe we have seen a pendulum swing far, far to the right. It will swing back. But our job is to increase the pace, uh, the pace of that progress. And every person in this country today uh, has a role to play in the resistance uh, and the effort to ensure that we can get a pro-equality majority in Congress or that we can have more pro-equality state legislatures and ultimately that we'll have a pro-equality president uh, sooner rather than later. All right, Chad Griffin, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. 
That was Chad Griffin. Coming up now, Paula Vogel. Mike Pence, about a week after he was uh, elected, went to go see Hamilton, and it was a big deal. Would you want him to come see Indecent? Yes. Uh, Now, this is always, of course, contentious, but look, I believe that theater is a place where you actually try to have a dialogue, where you actually try to show a dialectic within the play. And you don't want to write something that preaches to the converted. Right. You want to convert. <laughs> um, I also have a protocol that when someone enters the theater, we are public servants putting on a show, and we must welcome everyone under our roof. It's a hospitality thing. Um, particularly this play that I think uh, is based on a play that was very successful in the early 20th century, At that point in time, a young married man by the name of Sholem Ash wrote a play that actually upheld the love between two women. And it was embraced all over the world. If he can do that and, as it were, um, preaches to the non-converted in the audience about love is love, I would love to see uh, Vice President Pence come to Indecent um, so that we can show him that all love matters and is a beautiful thing. There was, uh, we're going back to November, but there was, uh, if you remember, when they realized that he was in the audience, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was not there, but they got him on the phone and they wrote a statement that they read then to him from the stage afterwards. And they said, we hope you enjoyed the performance, uh, but we want you to think about the values that we're talking about here and did sort of preach at him. Um, that was, it was a question of what was the right thing to do in that moment. And then there was that question, uh, did he hear it or did he leave? And then they said, oh, he was standing in the lobby, heard the whole thing. If you imagine that Vice President Pence or, or anyone else uh, of this administration that is not one that uh, I would guess you agree with on a lot of policy things um, would come and you heard there in the audience, do, what do you do in that situation? I think I would carefully compose my thoughts and ask for a moment to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, actually thought that the Hamilton address was respectful. Um, I think it's an opportunity. Listen, I, I, I wrote the play thinking exactly this. How do I try to make people see how important and how beautiful art and theater is? If I had a member of the administration who is on the brink of cutting out arts in school programming, in community accessibility, right? We've been battling uh, uh, Republicans uh, in terms of the NEA since 1980. Of course, that's an argument that I think about writing this play. I would want to seize that opportunity. I don't expect that people come and they all agree. What I'm trying to find is entryways of agreement um, so that the other issues can then be discussed. I just, you know, it's an interesting thing. Where in, where in America right now can we actually come together with different political points of view? To me, the fact that we are so divided, so contentious, uh, that we're not speaking to each other 
really mandates the importance of the theater. I mean, people do go out with different opinions. People do have different journeys with this. Um, but if there's an entryway into Indecent where you suddenly realize, oh, you know what, my family's only been in America for two or three generations, I'm going to enter the play this way. And it becomes a play about immigration. Great. Um, if you're anti-Semitic and you come into this play, um, hopefully the, the sweep of the play makes you rethink your anti-Semitism. You think a lot of anti-Semites are coming to this play? You know, I think anti-Semitism, like homophobia, like misogyny, like anti-immigration, like xenophobia, is actually something that is very subliminal within us. I have heard so many people say, oh, you know, I really love, I'm not anti-Semitic. Oh, I really love Muslims, you know what, or I really feel, I've heard a lot of people say that, but, and then you look at the actions. Theater makes us examine that which we have not yet brought to light. You wrote this play uh, before the presidential election. It was initially produced before the presidential election. Uh, how is your own sense of it changed and uh, and what you were trying to get across in the in the context of all this? I mean, it's not uh, it's not a political play, but politics is inescapable, uh, especially now. Right, it's everywhere. So does it seem different to you? Does it seem like there are messages that are different or things that uh, you think people will take away differently in the context of what's going on? Listen, I think all plays are political. It's a political choice to write a play that purports to be about a political moment in time but actually doesn't delve into the argument. It's a political choice to um, write a play which is simply, which is wonderful, light entertainment that will not disturb the surface of the water. That's a political choice. I was very disturbed. I have been very disturbed. I've been writing. In, in 1980, I actually thought about emigrating to Australia. They were welcoming uh, artists on a one-way visa. Um, I was very uh, disturbed about the division under George W. Bush. And so a lot of the plays that are now being birthed are actually coming back from that disturbance, that I could see the division in our, our political speech and in the rise of hate speech, right? So going into this uh, and starting to do this research about how we constructed barriers for anyone to come to America to flee the massacres in Europe in the 1920s was very much awakened uh, in the 1990s and 20s, by the uh, uh, 2000s, by the way, I I started hearing politicians talk about Mexicans, um, talk about uh, immigrants and the border, and now, of course, um, there's been a bashing of Muslims and this travel ban. So, uh, I I want to say that that uh, uh, 2016 didn't appear from nowhere. Um, we have been moving towards this extremity um, for the last 40 years. Um, I'm also a, a real um, lay historian about the Civil War. So there are certain bells and whistles and alarms that go off um, when I hear anything like states' rights being brought up by Texas politicians I'm aware that there are bells and whistles for what I guess we call a base 
Interesting that we use that word base. And that is, how do you activate someone's base impulses, which may have been subliminal, but that they get then get to bring to the surface and act out? The whole play centers on uh, the, a lesbian kiss on stage yes. and the reaction to that. Right. Uh, there are also moments where there are men who kiss each other on stage. Yes. Uh, do you think that's more outrageous now than it was uh, when you wrote the play or when it was seven months ago? Do you think that th- there has been a change in the the way that this stuff is viewed or is it just the uh, awareness of it, uh, the sort of... Uh, I, was, I was talking to Chad Griffin, uh, who's the head of the Human Rights Campaign, about how the gay rights movement uh, functions in this moment. Uh, and he said, look, not a lot has like actually changed, but there are symbolic things that have put him on edge. Yes. Um, and uh, there are things that concern him about where they're headed. So is it more where things are headed or is it uh, in your mind where things already may be that, uh, in, in terms of the change? Um, I, well, first of all, I feel in terms of gay and lesbian rights that one of the things that's happened in our country is we've lost our coalition. We've lost a coalition between gay rights, um, racial and economic equality, that that, that, that is uh, a central issue, all the way the spectrum of, of the coalition that brings in um, uh, a democracy and a democratic president. Um, that's been severed. Do I feel right now that we're at a volatile moment? Absolutely. Do I feel we're going to lose these rights? I think it's a real possibility. Um, Let me just say this is the first time since 1980 that I did want to see, because of my age, I'm 65, would I be able to emigrate? Now, I want to stay here uh, and fight to the very last moment. But I do think we're in a dangerous position. But did you really did you look into it? I mean, a lot of people talk before the election of Trump wins, right? Like uh, people I, I who, did look who into were it. against. Where where did you look into going? Uh, Canada. But you didn't. Uh, no, but it's just nice to know. I've worked in Canada, and I love Canada. Um, listen, I'm very patriotic. I love my country. Um, I don't want to leave this country. But I also want to say that if. Our current state of politics is not checked. I do believe we're in the Weimar Republic. It, it, you, you wrote a, a letter about the NEA funding yes. that uh, the proposed budget cuts to it that uh, that was in that same mindset. Where you, at the end of the letter, you said uh, something. You noted. Uh, I'm not quoting you exactly. It's always dangerous with a playwright, but uh, that. The in the lead up to uh, Nazi Germany, they closed down the theaters as a way of demoralizing people. That's right, and the, they did uh, that in the ghettos. Yes, yeah, they and that and that's chaos. part of the, and uh, that part of the play actually captures that. Right. I'm performing uh, elements of it in, in an attic. It, when you say Weimar Republic, when you go into the Nazi Russia, I mean. Are we getting hyperbolic? Uh, why? I don't think we are, because there, there were times and places, I think. Now, I am not a German historian, um, but I'm using the Weimar Republic because that is a moment in time when the outcome was not inevitable, 
when there was indeed resistance possible. The difficulty is that the paradigm had never shifted before. So one of the things I'm interested in this play and I'm interested in, in life period is when the paradigm shifts before it becomes history. And we don't yet know what that paradigm is before we drop the atom bomb, before the World Trade Center was struck by planes, before there was a holocaust, right? Before there was a totalitarian regime in Germany. All I want to do is look at the alarm bells, that there was a period in the Weimar Republic, it's called a republic, where when control shifted, one of the first things that happened was there was a labeling of art that was degenerate. And I, uh, now, it, does it mean that we're going in that direction? Not necessarily, but in 1980, Senator Jesse Helms passed a law that there could be no public funding to basically what was, he, he termed degenerate art, art that offended the community which to me is one of the prime reasons to do art. And one of the prime reasons I feel that in 1906, Sholem Ash wrote God of Vengeance. I mean, on the good side here, on the positive side, I want to construct an evening in the theater where we fall in love with theater and see how important it is. Please don't take theater away from us. I'm enjoying this so much. I want to construct a play that says, you know what? The Jewish community, European artistic community, all through Europe, the love between these two women was applauded and acclaimed and thought of as something beautiful. This isn't, when your, to your original question, this isn't something in 2017. This is something in 1907. You know, we all don't... All around Europe. All around Europe and in the Lower East Side, right? Yiddish families going to the theater and weeping for the two women in love, being seen as star-crossed lovers. The intellectuals loved this play. We don't have to reinvent the, the wheel. Two women kissing on the stage now in 2017 is nothing new. We have to be aware of the history of everything we've earned or just become aware that there were people before us. So, you know, do I think we could change in a blink of an eye in terms of gay rights, yes. But I have to say that I'm aware of that possibility of policing my body and gay rights because in this city, black men have been killed and policed for selling cigarettes. It's not as if, oh, this hasn't happened yet. It is happening and that's the thing. How do we empathize out of our own specific, narrow, at, at times, political concerns? Um, one of the things that's been a blessing to me about this production, and it's, it's something that I didn't realize until maybe the second production, I was actually the only queer person in the room. Here are all of these people pouring out their passion and their hours and their love and their support for this story written by a lesbian playwright about this central moment in time when this was the first love scene between two women on a New York stage. And the feeling of that, that they are putting years of their lives behind this story, really, really moves me. Why are we not instead also looking at what right now is being policed instead of saying, well, they're not policing me yet. 
um, where is that shift in empathy so that we see that we are all one community and the concerns of people who are scared, right? Teenagers who are scared to drive in a car to a, you know, a 7-Eleven or a convenience store. One of them may be dead uh, from an incident like that because they're playing music too loud. You, you, you talked about how there is a return in some ways to looking at the, uh, what was produced under George W. Bush's presidency. Art is always a reflection, a representation of what's going on. You see some of the early production moves that have happened uh, and projects that have been approved on, for screen, for stage. 1984 is opening on Broadway, which is uh, the, the press release that I got uh, months ago announcing that they were doing it leaned very far into how this was actually about Trump. Uh, and uh, so they're not really uh, shying away from that. What do you think the art that's produced, the theater, uh, the television, the music, the movies, paintings is going to look like under the Trump era? I'm worried about that. Um, One of the things I'm worried about uh, is that I think that the reason, and we do have a censorship of the arts in this country. Um, There are selections made at every not-for-profit uh, where one has to think, we, you know, we got to raise the budget and people want to feel good and they want to escape um, their worries about Trump as president. They don't want to go in and face it. Now, younger generations want to produce the art that expresses that. And perhaps theater companies that are not run by younger generations want to produce bombs, right? The difficulty with that is that you're actually increasing the divide between a younger generation that wants to go to theater um, and the generation that runs it. So I am worried about that. I think that for the the reason that Jesse Helms started attacking the arts was because theater, music, film, TV gives us an emotional language to talk about very cognitive things. It gives us a way to feel what's happening rather than get numb from what's happening. So one of my worries is that we keep producing plays that give us a nice buzz or a numbness rather than the resilience that we might feel by by actually sharing the emotion of what's happening and having a catharsis. You saw, I mean, Saturday Night Live, I'm not going to hold up as great art, but uh, the, one of the complaints that was voiced by a lot of people over the course of their last season is that it went from being parody and satire to then just being, uh, it looked like ways that they were hoping to piss off the White House and piss off Donald Trump, um, which they were successful for with at first, Um but then it just became, what's the point of doing it, right? It seems like that. And, and again, right. I'm not <laughs> Saturday Night Live only because it is uh, uh, was responding in very quickly in the moment. If there's a play that's being written, it'll be some time still before it's on a stage. If there's a painting, uh, maybe it'll it's already being exhibited. But uh, right, listen, I mean, I it's very interesting. I do believe in entertainment. I love entertainment. I love comedy. There's a lot of comedy in Indecent. There's a lot of song and dance in Indecent. Why? Because you, you have to embrace that kind of enjoyment. And Saturday Night Live 
regardless of what they do on a weekly basis, I can't imagine writing that week yeah. by week, gave me Kate McKinnon mm-hmm. performing Hillary Clinton singing Hallelujah. And I sat at home in my living room with my wife, and we wept. And uh, for that alone, I thank them. Um, I think we're going to need our Samantha Bees um, and our Kate uh, uh, Kate McK- McKin- McKinnon. McKinnon, yeah, McKinnon, right? Yeah. Um, more than ever in this, I don't, I don't think that um, a comedian can hit the target every time. But I think, I think comedy, and I hope this is the case in Indecent, allows us to laugh so we can slip off the mask of comedy. And that's the most important thing to do, I think, politically, is through laughter, slip off that mask of comedy so we can actually look truth in the face. Has it changed the work that you think that you'll do with what's going on, the way that you react to the political moment? Uh, I'm going to ask you about art overall, but when you think about what work you've got underway. I'm now thinking that I only want to do something that really actually is important, um, that has a resonance. Um, there are a lot of projects that would be fun to do um, that I'm, I'm not doing. Listen, I mean, the blessings of reaching Broadway as the kind of David in a field of Goliaths uh, this season. You know, we're, First we're, time at 65 years old. Uh, yeah, I'm 65 years old. I'm the world's oldest living virgin. Um, <laughs> I'm on Broadway. Um, I come from the Vineyard Theater of 125 seats. We have a $3 million annual budget, and we are nominated in a field where the annual budgets are $40 million, $70 million, and then Scott Rudin, who is priceless. Um, so, you know, when, you're, when you have a limit of money and time, it's interesting how it makes me really want to do something that I, I won't feel good about myself if I don't face on the page. The play ends... Uh there, there's a moment towards the end that seems like the ending uh, when it, the, the line is, uh, they return to ashes. That's uh, a very downbeat ending to it. Then it ends in a more hopeful way. Uh, and I won't give away the ending for anybody who, listening who hasn't uh, seen it. Uh, is that, do you feel like that's important uh, to, uh, given the frustration that you feel, uh, the anxiety you feel to not end on a down note. Listen, uh, I, and you wrote I, that yeah. before this happened, but yeah, in, in, absolutely. In, but what you're you're talking about? Listen, I a I I work with uh, young writers for the last forty years. I've worked with young writers. Every day that gives me hope. Every day I think how brilliant the future is going to be. Um, every day I believe in my field because I'm working with young writers, um, and I also believe in Thornton Wilder as a kind of mentor. Um, with our town. And I really believe that hope is the most important civic duty we have as as citizens. I believe in hope. Um, the play believes in hope. Um, we, we can't beat ourselves down. We have to say, all right, let's take a deep breath. And together as one, let's go out of the lobby into the street. I do believe that. All right. Paula Vogel, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much. That was Paula Vogel. Thanks to Bridget Mulcahy, our producer, as always. Remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Coming up soon, episodes with Terry McAuliffe 
Jason Kander, and many more.